If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and start turning to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, chapter 1. We're kicking off a series, a journey through the book of Exodus this morning. I'm really excited about walking through uh, Exodus with you guys. Um, it's an amazing, amazing book, and I think it's going to be very instructive and encouraging for our church as we walk through it over the next uh, couple of months. Um, so Exodus chapter 1 is where, where we're going to begin today. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Um, so uh, the words will also be on the screen behind me as well if you don't have a Bible. But there's, there should be Bibles on the few backs in front of you, so you can grab one. And we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter, uh, 22 verses. And so I'm going to read Exodus chapter 1, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into uh, the text this morning. All right? All right. All right, let's go. Y'all ready? ready? All right, I'm ready to preach. Y'all ready to sit on the teaching God's Word? All right, let's go. All right, here's what God's Word says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, God, which has, as James chapter 1 says, has the power to save our souls. God, I don't have the power to save anybody's soul. God, I'm weak. Uh, I'm imperfect. I'm in desperate need of your grace every single second. Lord, I need your help to be able to even read and understand your word, let alone teach it. So please come and help me right now, God. 
Help me as I teach. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth and help us all to listen. Yes, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us and shape us and mold us into the image of your son, Lord, as we sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. I pray, Lord, that that everyone in this room would have an encounter with the God of Exodus this morning, with the God who is mighty to save, with the God who can deliver his people from even the greatest oppression. I pray that everyone in this room would have an encounter with the God who is holy, holy, holy. God, you are so good. You are so worthy of our praise. You're so worthy of our adoration. And it's so easy for us to to just focus on and worship other things, God, and to become captivated by all the trivialities that are all around us. And I pray that you would arrest our attention and arrest our affections this morning, fix our eyes on you. I pray that if there's anyone here, I know there are in this room, God. There are those here who are not born again. There are those here who don't know you. Maybe some who haven't been to church in a long time. Maybe they're... There are people here who've been coming to church for a long time, but they've just been playing church and playing and being a Christian, and they don't actually know you, the one true God. I pray and plead with you this morning, God, open their eyes. God, I pray that you'd be merciful, and I pray that you'd build up your church, God. Lord, please be with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Any grammar buffs in here? Grammar buffs? Okay. We got one grammar buff. Not very Okay, we got a couple. We got a couple. I like like grammar. I did... I was just talking with somebody the other day. I did phonics when I was a kid. They did phonics, you know, hooked on phonics. Works for me, right? Anybody else do phonics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some phonics people in here. Yeah, phonics works. It's pretty helpful. Anyways, I like grammar. Um, and I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a grammar Nazi or anything like that. I'm not like one of those people that's going to correct you every time you do. But I do kind of like to edit things in my mind. It's just something enjoyable. Um, well, anyways, it doesn't take a grammar buff to know that it's not good grammar to start a sentence with the word and. Right? We all know this. Hopefully you all know this. If you don't, then you learned something new already this morning. Okay? You shouldn't start a sentence with the word and. And while it doesn't come through in English, that's actually how the book of Exodus starts. It's the Hebrew letter law, which means and. That's the very first Hebrew letter in the book of Exodus. But this wasn't a grammar error by Moses. Okay? Moses didn't, you know, fail grammar school as far as we know. I don't know. Maybe he did. But this is intentional because Exodus is not meant to be read in a vacuum. It's another chapter in a bigger story. Exodus picks up where the book of Genesis left off. So I think in light of that, it would be helpful for us to recap Genesis. Many of you know, if you were with us last year, we walked through the book of Genesis. But it's been a little bit. We've had some things happen in between now and then. Um, And so it's kind of hard to believe. We started the book of Genesis when we were meeting at Jefferson Middle School. Which was like a year ago. A lot has happened in between now and then, hasn't it? Like a pandemic and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. So let's recap where we've been in the book of Genesis. So in chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He created men and women in his image to exercise dominion over his creation and to be fruitful and multiply. But then we know that the serpent, he deceived Adam and Eve and they disobeyed God. And they were cast out of Eden and away from the presence of the Lord. And what's more, uh, because of their sin, the the curse of death and of pain and futility entered into the world. But even in judgment, God promised a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said, The seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, is going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so that promise that God made in Genesis 3, it begins to take shape. 
In Genesis 12, when God chooses a man named Abraham and God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham, an unconditional promise, not something that Abraham earned, but God chose Abraham and promised three things in particular. He promised that he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars and make him into a great nation. He promised to give him the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, symbolizing a return to what was lost when they were cast out of Eden, when mankind was cast out of Eden. And he promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring, which was alluding to the offspring, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's an allusion to Jesus. But first... God also told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign nation for 400 years. Listen to Genesis 15, 13, and 14 and tell me this isn't like a preview of Exodus. God says this to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. You know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Exodus chapter 1 through 14 in Psalm. Right there. There it is. Right all the way back in Genesis. So God makes this promise to Abraham. Then at the age of 99, Abraham and his barren wife Sarah miraculously have a child whose name is Isaac. And Isaac then fathers Jacob. And then Jacob fathers 12 sons. But Joseph was his favorite of the 12. And so because of that, his brothers were jealous. And so Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph was then taken down into Egypt. But God was with Joseph. Right. And Joseph rose to second in command in all the land of Egypt by interpreting a dream for Pharaoh by God's help. Uh, Joseph foresaw a massive famine that was going to hit the entire world. And so he actually helped Egypt prepare for this famine. They stored up with seven years of plenty. And then when the famine hit, he was able to provide for the nation of Egypt and all the other nations of the earth. And when that famine hit, Joseph's brothers uh, came to Egypt to buy grain, not even knowing that Joseph was still alive, let alone that he was second in command of Egypt. And so they come to Egypt to get grain. Joseph forgives his brothers, and he brings his father and his brothers to Egypt to dwell there under his care, where they continued to live and to multiply. And at the end of it all, Joseph looks back when he forgives his brothers, and he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph saw God's providential hand in all of those events. Joseph knew that it was God who had orchestrated his being sold into slavery in Egypt so that he could ultimately rise up to second in command and deliver uh, his family by providing for them. So that's where we're at in Exodus 1. When we arrive in Exodus chapter 1, Israel is multiplying and growing strong. We saw in verse 7 it said that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You should hear, you should hear a recollection back to Genesis chapter 1 here. Where God gives in the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The people of Israel are doing what God intended for us to do at the beginning of creation. And they're also doing what God promised they would do when he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that he would make him into a great nation and that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. Mm. God's keeping his promise. Right. But... 
the tone changes in verse 8, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like the music, the background music kind of just all of a sudden shifts into this ominous tone. Mm-hmm. It says, now there arose a new king <laughs> who did not know Joseph. And then the lights kind of go down and now there's some trouble. That's right. There's trouble in paradise. So verses 9 and 10 says that Pharaoh said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Listen to this, lest they multiply. So God's purpose for his people is that they would multiply. Pharaoh sees that as a problem, and he intends to stop it. He intends to stand in the way of the multiplication of God's people because he was concerned that these Israelites were getting too strong, and they might turn on us, and they might actually become our enemies. And so Pharaoh set himself at cross purposes with God. And by the way, as we walk through the first 14 chapters of Exodus, Pharaoh is the primary antagonist trying to stand against God and against God's people. Spoiler alert, it's not going to work out very well for Pharaoh. <laughs> but that brings us, that brings up the first of three truths that I want to point out, point out this morning from this text. The first of which is this. God's enemies are bent on destroying God's people. All right. God's enemies are bent on destroying God's people. And while it is Pharaoh who is front and center in opposing Israel here in Exodus chapter 1, behind his opposition to God's people and influence is Satan. Pharaoh actually wore a crown with a cobra on the front, a symbol that was not lost on the people of Israel that was a clear allusion back to the serpent Mm -hmm. in the garden. But it was Pharaoh's actions that even more closely identified him with the serpent, with the evil one. You can see Satan's fingerprints clearly in the tactics that Pharaoh uses to try to stop the Israelites from multiplying. What Pharaoh does is truly satanic. First, he enslaves the people of Israel. He has subjected the people of Israel to hard, forced labor. The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and they forced them to build cities. When the Israelites continued to multiply anyways, the people of Egypt became even more afraid and so they increased their brutality. Verse 13 and 14 says, we read two times. Did you catch that? Two times it says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Slavery has the mark of the evil one all over it. Because slavery is one of the most dehumanizing things that a human being could do to another human being. Few things are more evil and more horrific. Sadly, not only does our own nation have the evil of slavery as a stain on our past, but slavery continues to be prevalent in the world today. Did you know that more people are in slavery today than at any other time in human history? And we're in 2021. 40 million is the, is the conservative estimate. 40 million slaves in the world. Tragically, one out of four of these slaves is a child. Many of these are victims to slave labor or trafficked as sex slaves. And slavery remains an awful reality around the globe, one that we need to be aware of and praying against. As a church and as Christians, there are several ways, I believe, that we're compelled to respond. One of those ways we need to respond is we need to pray. We need to, uh, Hebrews says, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Same thing with those who are in bondage to slavery. We need to remember those who are captive as though we are captive with them. That's called compassion. I mean, suffering with people. 
means not getting so, uh, not drowning in all of our entertainment here that we're completely unaware of what's going on in the world around us, that there's real suffering and that there's real dire need all around the world and here. Because trafficking is an issue here in the United States. There are people who are being trafficked and oftentimes uh, it's right under our noses and we don't even recognize it. There are some good resources out there, by the way, that you can go to. Uh, and you can uh, learn some of the warning signs uh, to, to try to see when people are being trafficked. We need to pray. Yeah. Secondly, we need to demonstrate hospitality. We need to be a safe place for people caught up in trafficking and those caught up in things like this. A place, a church where, a welcoming church where people feel safe to be able to talk about uh, what they've gone through. Oh, yeah. And we also need to refuse participation in anything that supports it. And I'm talking specifically here about the pornography industry, mm. which helps drive sex trafficking. Guys, I want you to know, and girls too, but especially guys, because let's just be honest, this is a guy thing, okay? Every single stream, every single web page hit, while it may seem like a merely a digital interaction for you, it impacts a very real person, many of whom are held against their will and are coerced into this wicked work. Every time you make that click, every time you stream that video, you are, in essence, you are complicit in the sex trade. Because that's all those web hits, all those hits, that's what's funding the evil of sex trafficking. That's what helps continue to perpetuate it. I just saw a stat this morning that 36% of all internet downloads are porn. Come on now. 36%. It's happening everywhere. It's pervading our culture. It's one of the greatest and saddest evils of our time. Guys, Ephesians 5.11 says this. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Mm. Brothers, let's not take part in these fruitful, unfruitful works of darkness. Amen. Let's expose them. Let's flee from these things. Mm. For our Yes, for the good of your own soul, but also... Because for the good of those who right now are being subjected to cruel treatment and who are being subjected to trafficking and slavery, like, let's not participate in that. Let's expose it. Let's work against it instead of being complicit in it. Amen? The persistence of of slavery is a sobering reminder that this world is under the power of the evil one. But thankfully, Satan's time is short. He's on a leash and Jesus is returning soon. There is hope. So, unfortunately, when Pharaoh failed to stop God's people from multiplying through forced labor, he resorted to even more heinous methods. Pharaoh called the Hebrew midwives, and he told them that as they delivered the Hebrew babies, that if it was a boy, they were to kill the child. Baby girls could live. But the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but more, and they refused to carry out his evil decrees. So when his plan didn't work, Pharaoh doubled down, and in verse 22, he ordered all the male Hebrew infants thrown into the Nile River, whether or not they were at the point of birth or not. He just said, just throw them all in the river. I don't want you to miss what happened here. This really struck me for the first time as I was studying this this week. So Pharaoh told the midwives to kill the male infants at birth, that they were to be there as the birth was taking place, and as soon as they could tell whether this was a boy or a girl, if it was a boy, they were to kill the child and let the girl live. But the midwives, their excuse to Pharaoh is that they arrived after the baby had been born, implying that it was too late to kill the baby. 
if they had been there on time as the baby was being born, it would have been okay for them to kill the baby under this current policy. But since the baby had already been born, it was too late. But by verse 22, apparently, Pharaoh's changed his policy. And now he goes, it doesn't matter if it's too late. Just throw them into the Nile River. I want to put a stop to the multiplication of these people. And guys, it just it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that it is not a large step from abortion at the point of birth to infanticide. Look how quickly Pharaoh went there. When human life is not valued inside the womb, it will not be valued outside the womb. This is what makes the practice and the celebration of abortion so abhorrent. Abortion, and I don't say these words carelessly. I don't say this flippantly. I've thought long and hard and deep about this, and I believe that Scripture is very clear on this. Abortion is satanic because abortion is the snuffing out of human life in the womb. The serpent's aim, think about it, the serpent's aim is to destroy image bearers of God, to stand in the way of God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He has set himself against God's purpose to, for, for human beings made in his image to be fruitful and multiply. And that is precisely what abortion does. It, it is the taking of human life and it is a grievous sin. We can't sugarcoat it. And doing it inside a sanitized doctor's office does not cleanse it. God is a defender of the weak and He takes up the cause of the oppressed. And a day of reckoning will come when He will right every single wrong. Now, I'm very aware of the fact that some of you in this room have likely been touched by abortion. It's estimated that one in four women in the world will have an abortion at some point in their life. And so I'm very aware that some of you may have been touched by this. Maybe you've had an abortion, or maybe you've encouraged someone to get an abortion. And if that is you, I want you to know this morning that God is merciful and gracious. We are very great sinners. When I say that abortion is satanic, I want you to hear something. I'm not saying that you are satanic or that you are somehow Satan, okay? Here's the reality. Apart from Jesus, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says that all of us were following the prince of the power of the air. We were all under the influence of Satan and under his demons. And we were captured by him to do his will, is what Scripture says. Every single one of us. Abortion is one of many manifestations of that. We are very great sinners, but I want you to know that if you've had an abortion, if you've, if you've uh, influenced somebody to have an abortion, maybe there's someone in here who's performed an abortion. I don't care. We are great sinners, but Jesus Christ is a greater Savior. Jesus came to die on the cross to endure the wrath of God that we rightly deserve for our sin. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He gave His Son in your place so that Jesus could die instead of you, even though Jesus was totally innocent and we are completely guilty. It's almost incomprehensible that God could love vile sinners like us, but He does. And if you're living under the weight of guilt and condemnation today, you can come out from under it. The answer isn't to say, it's not a sin, I'm going to shout my abortion, I'm going to pretend like it's not a sin. Don't do that. Confess your sin and come to God and He'll forgive you of your sin. You don't have to try to suppress your guilt. You don't have to try to turn the other way. 
We can confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to continue living in the dark and living in shame and living in condemnation. There's forgiveness for you. There's cleansing for you this morning because of the blood of Jesus, which is sufficient to cover all your sin, no matter how much you sin, no matter what you've done or where you've been. Place your faith and trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says, for anybody who's in Christ. Now the same motivation that drove the satanic enslavement and infanticide of the people of Israel is the one uh, that today drives the persecution of the church as well. God chose the ethnic people of Israel to be His people in the Old Testament, but today the people of God are those who have faith in Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ is made up of people from many nations and languages, not just ethnic Israel. And the church is growing today through the proclamation of the gospel. As as people hear the gospel and believe, the church multiplies. So no one is born a Christian by natural birth. You must be born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3. So when someone repents and believes the gospel, they're born again. And people repent and believe as the gospel as the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. But just like Pharaoh in Exodus 1, Satan continues to try all he can to stop the multiplication of God's people today. But what's evident from Exodus 1 is that no matter what Satan or God's enemies do, they are powerless to stop God's plan to multiply his people. And that's the second truth I want to point out this morning is that God's enemies cannot stop God's plans to multiply his people. Did you notice how no matter what Pharaoh tried to do to stop Israel from multiplying, it it didn't work in this passage? In fact, his efforts have the opposite effect of what he intended. But one of the themes that's going to come up again and again in Exodus chapter 1 through 14 is Pharaoh's utter helplessness before Yahweh, the God of Israel. There's just, there's no contest. God wants to make clear to the watching world that mighty Pharaoh and Egypt and all of her so-called gods have no chance against the God of Israel. They have no power at all. And the ineffectiveness of all of Pharaoh's attempts is highlighted throughout Exodus chapter 1. So in in Pharaoh's first attempt, after he subjects Israel to harsh slavery, verse 12 says this. It says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It was literally having the opposite effect. Try as hard as he could. Pharaoh, the harder he tried, the more they multiplied. Over and over again. So then, in the second attempt, Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys at birth, but they refused. And as a result, verse 21 says that because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these Hebrew women gave birth to more children. The very thing Pharaoh was stop, trying to stop. Pharaoh's actions again and again only lead to the further multiplication of God's people. And then I'm just going to give you, I have, because I have to, a little preview of next week. Because Pharaoh's next attempt when he says, throw all the Hebrew boys into the Nile River in verse 22, after he did that, baby Moses was cast into the Nile River by his mother, but he was saved by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. And so through Pharaoh's own decree of casting the children into the Nile, a deliverer is raised up who then goes and ultimately is raised up by God to set all of God's people free as they continue to be fruitful and multiply. Y'all see how like, 
I mean, God is making it a point on purpose to make sure that Pharaoh knows and understands that there's nothing he can do. He can't possibly stand against God. Everything Pharaoh tries has the opposite effect. God has no rival. Pharaoh isn't going toe-to-toe with God. God is doing whatever he wants with Pharaoh. It's almost like he's toying with him. God's enemies are powerless to stop his purpose to multiply his people. And nowhere is this principle clearer than at the cross of Christ. Satan tried to destroy the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Satan thought he had won as Jesus hung on the cross, breathing his last breath. But just like Pharaoh, Satan's attempts only served God's purposes. Jesus' death on the cross was actually God's plan from the beginning. It was the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So yes, the serpent bruised Jesus' heel. Jesus suffered on the cross. But in his death, Jesus crushed Satan and disarmed him forever. I want to read you Colossians 2, 13 to 15, just to help illustrate for you how Jesus' death on the cross crushed Satan under his feet. Here's what it says. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He set aside the debt that stood against you, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus died on the cross, verse 15 of Colossians 2 says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, which is referring to Satan and his demons. Satan's weapon against us is accusation. The book of Revelation says that he accuses the brethren before God's throne day and night. So just like Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he holds out temptation to you and he says, See, doesn't this look good? Try it and you can be like God. Don't worry, you're not going to die. And then what happens? When you take that, that apple, when you take that temptation and you take a bite of it, as soon as you take into it, bam, the moment he bites it, you bite into it, he knows he's got you, and then he turns on you. He offers you a temptation. He says, this is going to be good. This will make you happy. This will make you feel good. And as soon as you give into it, he turns on you and he points his finger at you and he looks at God and goes, see, he's guilty. She's guilty. He deserves to die. She deserves to die. Satan gave Adam and Eve a poisoned apple. And that's exactly what he does with every one of us. He offers us this enticement, then temptation, and then he turns around and he accuses us and says, you deserve to die. But here's the deal. Jesus' death on the cross disarmed Satan and his ability to accuse us because on the cross, Jesus canceled the record of the debt that stood against us. Our sin was nailed to the cross because Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. Jesus paid the debt for your sin in your place. So if you've trusted in Jesus, Satan's accusations are no longer valid because you are no longer guilty. You've been set free. That deserves a clap. Amen? In this way, verse 15 says, God has put Satan to open shame. Satan has been shamed. He has been utterly defeated. Everything that he's tried, he has just been beaten to a pulp. Jesus has crushed the serpent under his feet. 
June was over at my house the other day, and June crushed a serpent with a piece of wood, and crushed his head with a piece of wood, and I thought about that, about how Jesus has crushed the serpent. It was just a little garter snake, but it wasn't that mean, but whatever. It made me think about it. <laughs> have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you have assurance that your sins have been paid for? That your debt has been wiped away? That you're clean? Apart from Jesus, there truly is a record of debt that stands against us. It's a debt that we could never repay because we've sinned against Almighty God. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves. We need Jesus' righteousness because ours falls short and Jesus' righteousness is received by faith alone. If you haven't done this, I encourage you to acknowledge your sin today, to confess your need for forgiveness and to trust in Jesus alone. Let Him pay your sin debt. Then turn away from living for yourself and start following Him. For all of us who trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Our debt has been paid for. And though Satan continues to war against God's people, he will not prevail. He is on borrowed time and he's on a leash. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Persecution will come, but just like in Exodus 1, these attempts to stop the church from multiplying only serve to advance the gospel even further. There's so many examples of this in the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 8, verse 2 after the stoning of Stephen, one of God's servants, he was stoned and martyred for his faith. It says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So what happened next? What do you think? Did the believers go into hiding? Did it stop God's people from multiplying? No. Look at verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In other words, the church continued to multiply. The stoning of Stephen meant to stop the multiplication of God's people only caused the gospel to spread further and faster. And not only that, but Saul, who was presiding over Stephen's murder, would later become the Apostle Paul, God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles and the greatest church planter of all time. God over and over and over again takes Satan's schemes, Satan's attacks against his people and turns them on its head. Do you see? It's all over the Bible, guys. It's all over the Bible. Jesus wins. Period. End of story. Jesus wins. And Paul himself came to understand this very well. You've heard me quote this passage many times because I love it. He said in 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, I am suffering for the gospel, bound with chains like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be bound. The word of God cannot be bound. Church, if God's aim is to multiply His people for His glory, and if we know that His purpose to do so cannot be thwarted, that should give us great confidence in making disciples, should it not? We're committed to making disciples as a church and equipping each of you to do the same because every follower of Jesus is called to make disciples. So it's our desire that every one of you would be in a discipleship relationship. We want to help you grow as a Christ follower and help equip you to go and to make other disciples. So at the end of the service, in just a bit, we're going to hand out a brief survey. It's a self-assessment, and it's designed to do two things. Number one, to help us get a gauge on who is currently in a discipleship relationship, 
and also to help those who aren't and want to get connected be able to do so. And so we're going to have ushers who are going to come around, and I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to fill these. Uh, it's like just three questions, multiple choice questions. And we're going to ask you to fill that out and then uh, hand those back in. Um, and I'll share a little bit more about that later. But first, one more truth I want to point out before we close. Uh, because some of you may be thinking, when I talk about making disciples and um, I talk about uh, investing your life in other people, well, I don't think this is for me. I don't know how God could, could use me. I'm, you know, I'm not smart enough, or I don't know enough about the Bible, or I'm too busy, or this or that. So the third truth is this, that God uses the weak to shame the strong. God uses the weak to shame the strong. There is a striking contrast in Exodus 1 between mighty Pharaoh and the Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh was scared of the Israelites, but these two women were not afraid of the mighty Pharaoh. They feared God instead. And another contrast, we don't even know this great, supposedly great king's name, but the names of Shifra and Pua have been recorded to be remembered forever. These women risked their lives in disobeying Pharaoh, but as one commentator put it, they understood that there are some things that are worse than death. There are some things worse than death. The midwives feared God more than man, and they weren't willing to sell out in disobedience to God's commands to save their own necks. And as a result of their faith, verse 20 says that God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God worked through two Hebrew women to frustrate the plans of the most powerful empire on earth at the time. Over and over through Scripture, we see that this is how God's work, because it's not about how great we are. It's not about how talented we are. It's not about how powerful we are. It's about how available and ready are we to be used by God, to let God work through us. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this. He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God use the weak? So that everyone know that it's by God's hand and by God's power that it's been done. So that God gets all the glory and honor and praise. God is not looking for strong, impressive people who can do great things for him. He's looking for humble, faith-filled people who will trust and obey him. Blessing is found in fearing God more than man. And the midwives in this passage are an example to us of what it looks like to walk by faith. So I'll ask you, do you fear God more than man? Think about that. Is it evident by the way that you live? There's a lot of people uh, in the world who walk around and look tough and act tough, but in reality they live in slavery to the fear of man, to the, the opinions of other people. But we need to fear God more than man, first of all, in our opposition to abortion. The midwives refused to partner with Pharaoh in this, knowing that it could cost them everything because they feared God. And it is costly today to expose and oppose abortion, but we need to speak up. One of the ways that you can get involved in addressing this issue is by caring for at-risk families and foster families through our DC-127 partnership. We've got a partnership with DC-127 that comes alongside families who are at risk of having children placed into foster care so that we can keep more kids from going into the system. 
That's one of the ways that we help address this issue is that we want less children going into the system in the first place. So we need to come around and support these at-risk families, okay? And DC 127 also comes around families who are fostering others. The Shambleys just had a, a foster placement, one, members of our church, just a few, uh, last week. Uh, that child was reunited with next of kin, but we want to come around families like the Shambleys who are saying, we'll do it, we'll step up, we'll serve the most needy and vulnerable among us, and we need to surround them with support and pray for them. So uh, one, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is talk to Walker and Emily Conkle. They're members of our church, and they're our liaisons with DC 127 if you want to get involved in that. And we would also strongly urge you to consider adoption. We have an adoption fund we have an, because one of the biggest barriers to adoption is finances. We understand that. And so we want to help eliminate that barrier so that more people will consider adoption. Guys, the reality is, is that if every single church, if every single Christian in uh, our evangelical churches alone in Washington, D.C., every family decided, okay, we'll adopt one child, we would have no more orphans in our city. Easily. If even half of the Christians in D.C. adopted, we would have no more orphans. And so I want to encourage you and urge you to consider adoption. Maybe it's something you've never considered before. And you go, well, I don't know I can do that. I'm too weak. I'm too th-. Look what God can do when we're just willing to trust and obey him. Don't try to figure it out. It doesn't matter if you think you're equipped or not. God's the one who equips you. Amen? So if you're interested in learning more about that, come and talk to us. We, want, we have money ready to be given out. And we want to give it away. <laughs> we want you to adopt. So you come and talk to us and we will help you. Okay? And the last thing when it comes to abortion is we also need to talk about it. Okay? We can't stand idly by and let culture stick its, hand, its head in the sand about what it's doing. We know what we're doing. We're killing children. We know it. To have the courage to say so, we need to fear God more than man. We need to fear God more than man. And we also need to fear God more than man in our proclamation of the gospel. Because the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh, the people of Israel multiplied. Because the disciples in Acts feared God more than man, the church multiplied. If we will fear God more than man by sharing the gospel with friends, neighbors, and family, this church will multiply. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, I was reading this week, says this. It says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. What can flesh do to me? That's a great question, isn't it? Think about it if you're a believer. Think about that question. What can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? Well, I suppose that if you share the gospel with somebody, you could be mocked or reviled. But Jesus said, if that happens to you, you should leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. I suppose somebody could, you know, just cock back and punch you right in the face. But Paul says that we bear in our body the marks that show, that prove that we belong to Jesus. I suppose it's possible, although extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely, that you could be killed for your faith. But where we live, I don't think that's going to happen. But even if that were to happen, we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if even if our heads are taken off, it just sends us to our greatest glory and our greatest joy. So when you think about it, what can flesh do to us? What can man do to you? Nothing. There's nothing. You could, uh, you, I would really challenge you to sit down and come up with a list I actually did this this past week, which is why I'm recommending it. And write a list of all the things you're afraid that somebody might do to you if you share the gospel, of all the negative ramifications. And then hold that list up to the light of the promises of God's word, and it removes the teeth from the fear. Because you realize, none of these things can hurt me. None of these things can hurt me. All they do is 
result in heavenly rewards and in blessing and in sending me to my greatest joy. Flesh can't do anything to us, church. So we need to fear God more than man in our proclamation of the gospel. I want to challenge you guys. We did. There were a lot of people last year. We were seeing God do some amazing things at Gospel and Grub. Okay, and I've just I'll just say this. I've been noticing there have been like four or five people coming out to Gospel and Grub the last few times. I want to challenge you to prioritize that in your calendar and come out with us or go do it with your disciple maker. Like. This is how we multiply, by sharing the gospel. If we want to see people come to Christ, we have to make Christ known to them. We don't need to, to, to you know, hide in our holes in fear like Gideon did. All right. So I want to encourage you and urge you to think about who you can share the gospel with and join us on the second and fourth Fridays when we go out uh, to share for gospel and grub. The entire storyline of Scripture is to the end that God will save people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation who are going to dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And God's enemies are powerless to stop him from doing this. In fact, God uses weak, ordinary people like you and me to accomplish this purpose, just so it's clear that he's the one who does the saving. That's the summary of what we read this morning. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And uh, I'm going to ask Sarah to play uh, on the, uh, the keys. And we're going to, and then I'm going to ask my ushers to go ahead and get up and you guys uh, grab those uh, little surveys and pins. I'm going to ask our ushers just to pass these out real quick. And what we're going to do is as they pass them out, we're just going to take a couple of minutes uh, to uh, get these, uh, to fill these out. They should be passing pins. And there's only three questions if you're, uh, if you're visiting from out of town, you don't need to, to fill one out. Or uh, if, you're, if you're just not interested at all in being a Christian or in discipleship and you're just like, I don't want to fill one out, that's, that's fine. You don't have to. But I'm asking the rest of you to please fill one out, even if you're already meeting with somebody for discipleship, because it'll help us kind of get a gauge on who's meeting with who and also help us you know, uh, know better who uh, wants to help disciple others and equip others. Okay, so... Um, I'm just going to, as those get passed out, take a couple of minutes uh, to fill those out. And then afterwards, I'll pray um, and we'll close in song. So Sarah's going to uh, play.